Thank you for joining us today. Today we'll be studying the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We'll be studying what the Apostle Paul teaches about the proper use of the spiritual gift of tongues and the role of women in the church. So if you'll open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we'll begin our lesson. Okay, why don't we get started in prayer? Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for this group to be able to gather together. We thank you for those who will be listening in remotely. We just thank you for your love that you've shown for us and your grace, even though we are such a messed up group of people. As we open your word this morning and we continue our study of 1 Corinthians, we ask that you just continue to teach us how to apply what we learn. Ask that you send the presence of the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds to your word this morning. We thank you for the word that you've given us. We pray that we'll leave here after we finish this study with a completely new way to look at how you want us to live our lives and apply it in a way that others see you living inside of us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're studying 1 Corinthians. Uh, We've been at this for a number of weeks. And last week, we really focused on love and how love is eternal. We talked about, unlike the other spiritual gifts that will pass away, love is eternal. It will be here into eternity and that loving others is the highest standard that we have. And even our spiritual gifts are not effective without love. And so I hope that you'll go back and listen to that recording because that chapter on love is so important and it should govern the way others see us. Just like we've read so many times that the test of living our life as a Christ follower is that they will know us by our love is what Jesus said. And so are others truly seeing our love for others shine through and it's not our doing it's the Holy Spirit working through us so that's really important so anyway let's begin our study in chapter 14 Paul continues he says pursue love yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts but especially that you may prophesy so what he's going to talk about in this chapter primarily really two things the primary focus in the beginning is going to be on tongues and what was happening is ecstatic utterances it was a very common form of pagan worship in the greco-roman culture these people we've talked about it before the pagans they would even go so far as to get drunk and really just dance themselves into a frenzy and they'd get so drunk that they thought that by getting into that mental state they could actually then communicate in the language of the gods little g and so what was happening is then the people in the church of Corinth, they were abusing this spiritual gift of tongues. In fact, it may be that they weren't really even speaking in tongues. It may be that they were just making noises. They were doing things in order to draw attention to themselves. You might think of it as kind of like counterfeit tongues because they weren't using it correctly. We talked about it before, the correct use, and we'll see even more this morning. Correct use of tongues was it was to be assigned to unbelievers. You remember at Pentecost when we studied in Acts, and we'll go look at that in a little while, when the Holy Spirit came, People were talking in their language, but many other people could hear their own language, even though 
the person talking didn't know those languages. So it was a way to authenticate that the Holy Spirit had been given, and it was really a sign to the unbelievers. And then we're also going to see that it should come, if there is speaking in tongues, it should be done in a very orderly fashion. It shouldn't be chaotic. And so Paul's going to correct them on what he saw as an abuse of this spiritual gift of tongues. What he's saying is everyone should pray to get the gift of prophecy, although not everyone has it. But he's going to explain why prophecy is a better gift than tongues. And he's going to tell why. Because they were using tongues just to edify themselves. Verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mystery. So what he's saying is tongues, when you're speaking to God, that's good. But if there's no one there to interpret it and nobody speaks the language that this person is speaking, well, then no one's edified. The church is not edified. The only person who is really edified is the person who's trying to show off and show that, wow, I've got a really special gift and I can speak in this tongue. Verse three, but one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. So Paul's saying that when you can prophesy, you're actually doing something that can help edify others in the church. Verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. So someone just speaking in a tongue that no one understands, it's not their language, and no one's there to interpret, all they're doing is they're just drawing attention to themselves. And Paul's saying that's an improper use of tongues. Verse 5, now I wish that you all spoke in tongues. So Paul's saying there's nothing wrong with tongues, but he's saying prophecy is better because it can edify others and edify the church. He goes on, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? So he's saying if you get these musical instruments and everybody just does their own thing and there's no order to it, it just sounds like a bunch of noise. It isn't going to produce anything that anybody can appreciate or understand. It's just a bunch of noise. He goes on, verse 8, For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So they use the bugle in a specific trumpet call to call people into battle. It was distinct. There were distinct notes. It wasn't just random sounds. And when you heard that, you knew it was time to go into battle. Verse 9, So also you... Unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. So Paul's saying that tongues, there should always be understanding, either directly, as we saw in Acts 2, 6. In fact, let's just flip over there real quick. Go over to the left over to Acts, and we studied this when we were studying Acts. Go over to Acts 2. Let's just take a look at this so we remember exactly what he's talking about here. We'll start in verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together, 
and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. You see, so people were speaking, but each person could hear in their own language. Verse 7, and they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And you can read on all these different nations and languages that are represented in the next several verses. So that was a type of tongue where you were speaking, but others could hear in their own language. So it was understandable, but it was also used to authenticate that the Holy Spirit had come and was used to help the unbelievers come to belief in Jesus Christ. So that was that use of it. And then we're later going to see, let me just flip ahead so you know where Paul is headed with this. If you go over to verse 28, go back to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 28, you can see, well, 27. He says, you should speak each in turn, let one interpret, but if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. So the two uses were, it was for unbelievers. Everyone could hear in their own language, even though the person speaking didn't know the language. Or there had to be an interpreter to interpret what was being said. So he's saying there's a lot of languages, but they all have meaning. So he continues in verse 11. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be to the one who speaks a barbarian, or your translation may say foreigner. And the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me, a foreigner, meaning I can't understand them. They can sit there and talk all they want. I have no idea what they're talking about. Verse 12. So also you... Since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. So what he's saying is spiritual gifts are there to edify others. It's not to bring self-satisfaction to our pride. You know, that's what they were doing. They were just fueling their pride by standing around babbling, making all this noise, saying they were speaking in tongues, and yet no one was edified other than themselves. It was their self-glorification. They weren't focused on others. And so Paul is correcting that. That's what was going on in the church. Verse 13, therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. We're going to see he's going to talk more about that in just a little while. Now, these next verses, verse 13 through 19, there's some commentators who say Paul is actually even speaking sarcastically about the counterfeit use of tongues. What they were doing, some of them were doing, it wasn't even exercise of a spiritual gift. They were just babbling, making noises, trying to act like they were blessed and above everyone else. They had this special gift and they were all that. And they were doing it to glorify themselves rather than God. So verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. By the way, my spirit, it's lowercase. This is not the Holy Spirit. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I shall pray with the spirit and I shall pray with the mind also. I shall sing with the spirit and I shall sing with the mind also. So he's saying it shouldn't be babble. It needs to be done in a way that edifies others, not yourself. Verse 16, otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks since he does not know what you're saying? So remember, amen means so be it. It means we agree. That's why we say amen at the end of somebody praying. You then say amen, that means so be it, we agree with what you prayed. But if somebody's just babbling and you don't have any idea what they're saying, 
and there's no one there to interpret, then how is the rest of the congregation going to say, Amen, we agree, because we don't have a clue what you were saying. Verse 17, For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. Verse 18, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. Okay, so even Paul spoke in tongues, but he did it in the proper way. He did it to edify others, not himself. Verse 19, however, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. So he's saying Babel is just useless in public worship. When you're gathered as a church, worship should be about edifying and instructing others and doing what honors God. It shouldn't be about drawing attention to ourselves. Verse 20, brethren, so these are fellow believers, do not be children in your thinking, yet evil be babes, but in your thinking be mature. So Paul's now going to give the proper use of tongues in a church gathering. First, he's going to reference back to Isaiah, just a little bit of history, what he's talking about when I'm getting ready to read. The prophet Isaiah kept telling the northern kingdom of Israel to repent in that if they didn't, bad things were going to come. And yet the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, they'd make fun of Isaiah and they'd mock him. And so he gives this warning to them that we're getting ready to read. But what eventually happened then, Syria came, conquered them, and Israel didn't understand their language while they were in exile. So that was used as a sign to Israel of their coming judgment. So we read in verse 21, in the law, meaning in the Old Testament, it is written, and this is out of Isaiah, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Verse 22, so then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. So this is where he's saying tongues are a sign of God's sovereignty to the unbelievers. Verse 23, if therefore the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? So if an unbeliever comes into a church and everybody is just making all these sounds all at once and everybody's just blabbering, the unbeliever is going to walk in there and go, I don't know what's happened to all these people. It looks like they've all gone mad. And so it isn't going to have the effect that tongues were meant to have, which is to help bring a believer into belief. Verse 24, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God declaring that God is certainly among you. So I think this is also important to pick up on. Paul is also saying one of the purposes of gathering together as a church is to help bring about the conversion of the lost. That's part of the reason we gather together as Christians, so that unbelievers can come to church and hear the word and through us in talking to them can come to faith. And so one big question that hit me as I was preparing for this lesson. It was like, okay, so when was the last time we shared the gospel with someone? And particularly, when was the last time while we were at church, did we maybe go up to somebody who we'd never met before and just introduce ourselves and see if maybe it was their first time to be there? Maybe that was our opportunity to share the gospel with them. 
That's what Paul is saying. One of the reasons we gather together in worship. Verse 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm. You might think hymn, a song. Has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. So what he's talking about, when they were gathering, everybody was just kind of doing their own thing. And they were doing it all at the same time. There were people there singing. There were people there speaking in tongues. There were people trying to teach and preach. It was all going on at once. And so the outcome of it was it wasn't edifying anybody. And he finishes that verse by saying, let all things be done for edification. So whenever people come together, gather together as the church, the gifts that are used should be used in a way to edify others and build up the church. So now he's going to give instructions on how to properly use tongues in the gathering of the church. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three and each in turn and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Okay, so what he's saying is the whole church speaking in tongues all at the same time or a whole bunch of people just chaotically, everybody making noises, that is unbiblical. And that is not the proper use of tongues. And in fact, there's just one person and they begin speaking in tongues and there is no one to interpret, then that person should be silent. I have a pastor friend who was telling me about this just not too long ago. They had somebody come to their church and in the middle of his preaching, they started making all these noises. And my friend, the preacher, uh, asked the guy, you know, what are you doing? And the guy said, I'm speaking in tongues. And so the preacher said, "Is just hold on a minute. Is anyone here, can they interpret what he's saying? And he gave the congregation time. No one, he said, no one's here to interpret and no one could interpret. And he said, you are instructed to sit down because what you're doing is not biblical. And that's the proper way it should be. If somebody could be there to interpret, then fine, let's hear from them. I thought that was interesting. I've never seen that happen, but I thought that was interesting way to handle it. And so we continue on verse 29. And let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. So if somebody is there and says that they have new prophecy, well, they shouldn't all talk at once. Two or three can speak, but then the others are to discern whether that is really biblical teaching. Is that proper teaching? And you've got to weigh what's being said against, of course, we have scripture now, but against the other teaching that had already been taught. Verse 30, but if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. So if there's new revelation that's received while another is speaking, the one speaking should stop and let's hear this new revelation. And then let's weigh it and make sure that it truly is from the Lord. Remember, Scripture had not all been laid out at the time of this writing. It was still in the process of being written, the New Testament. I want to touch on that in just a second. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. So each should take turns. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, meaning of the believers. So Paul's saying there should be order in the church. When we gather together, there should be order, not chaos. 
It shouldn't be something that everybody's doing their own thing. There should be order in the way that the service is conducted. And he's also making it clear that just everybody talking in ecstatic utterances all at the same time simultaneously, that is not biblical. Let me point this out before we leave this part of this chapter. There are certain denominations, you know, Pentecostals, there are others who still believe that tongues exist. I'll let you make your own decision as to that. We read a few weeks ago where the gift of tongues and other gifts are going to go away, but there's no time. When is that going to happen? Clearly, there's no need for those gifts once Jesus Christ returns because we will be with him. And it said all those will pass away, but love will remain. We read that last time. But there certainly are some churches that still see the practice of tongues. There are many others that say, well, that gift has now gone away. Even the gift of prophecy has gone away because now we have the scripture. It's all here now. There's no need to authenticate an apostle or someone writing the scripture. There's no need for tongues now because we have scripture. We have the word and, you know, the word is the word. We don't need to have these other gifts. I'm just pointing out the different views so that you're aware of that. So before I move on into this next section, any questions on that? I have a question. Has anybody on the phone call ever heard tongues be spoken? And if so, where? Yeah, in prayer groups I have before. It's a little it's a little odd if they don't kind of announce that they're going to be praying in tongues because when you don't understand them, you're just focusing on what are they saying. So, I mean, this verse is really relevant then about people that don't understand because it just confuses everybody else. Yeah, as a pastor, I've, you know, I've been at a zillion different churches, so I've experienced the full gamut of being at a church where the entire congregation is speaking in tongues. There's been others where you have someone speaking in tongues and there's an interpretation, kind of like we've been talking about. So it's all over the map, and it's pretty common. Uh, in fact, this is what's so weird. In the United States, probably the people in this group probably don't hear it much, but globally, it's the most common thing in the world. It, it just happens all over the place. Now, are they doing it right? Are they doing it correctly? 90% not, but it's more popular in uh, third world countries. Like that's the standard prayer practice. Yeah, so I appreciate those insights. I personally have never seen it, although I have friends, one good friend who used to be Pentecostal and has told me about it. And I'm not going to take away from if the Holy Spirit wants to use that gift in a way through someone, who am I to get in the way of it? So it's written here, but it's also, it's very clear on what the proper use of it is. And it's not to be a gift that's used in a way to edify yourself. And, you know, at least what I've heard about it, it would appear it's used more in that way in a lot of places than it is to edify others. And so my reading of this is if you end up in a place in a church somewhere and there's a whole lot of people just carrying on and speaking in tongues and there it's chaos and there's nobody there interpreting and they're all talking at the same time, I'd tell you that's not biblical and it's not certainly not worshiping God according to what Paul is telling us. And again, this is God speaking through Paul. I think you better get out of there. But I'm not taking away. Could it still exist somewhere? I'll leave that to you. I'm just trying to help you see what the Bible says about it. And Larry, I have one more thing, too. On the prophecy piece, like you said, New Testament is written now. I mean, is there a place now for prophecy since you've already got it written in the New Testament, like Revelation and things like that? Yeah, and I think that's why there's many places in the Bible that says when you hear what somebody is saying is prophecy, 
always go back and weigh it against what's already been written. So there's certainly not going to be new prophecy that is counter to what's written in the Bible. That's clear to me. Could there be prophecy about something? So, Larry, what's he referring to? Because, I mean, John hadn't written Revelation at this point, had he? And we didn't have, quote-unquote, the Bible. So what's he referring to? That's right. So that's why he's addressing this. We didn't have all of this written. And so there were prophets. There were people writing. You talk about Revelation. That would be written, explaining the end times. At what point did the prophets kind of stop happening? When the scripture was completed. And when was that? Yeah, 323, the, the Council of Nicaea met, and that's when it was canonized. And now the problem with that, of course, is that's 323. And so does that mean that in between roughly you know 90 AD or whenever John wrote Revelation and then the canonization of 323, that there's still prophecy going on and that that should be counted? It's really tough to say that just because, you know, as Larry is saying, there's so many different interpretations on this. And I don't know how wise it would take to be a hard stand on God can't speak, because then now you're putting limits on God. But specifically, as far as new theological revelation, that's done. And so could God speak to say, you know, for example, before I went to war in Iraq, I had this Pentecostal chaplain <laughs> uh, prophecy over me. He said, Chris, what God's going to do for you is he's going to use your story in Iraq. You're going to see some horrible things, but it's going to start your whole new ministry. So get ready for that. That's exactly what happened. Uh, my whole ministry started because of, I mean, random stuff that happened that you could not explain outside of God's sovereign hand moving. Okay. And so in a maybe specific revelation to somebody's life, that would make sense. But there isn't going to be like, and the Messiah is now going to be a woman or, you know, like, or something like that. That's just not going to be there. You won't find anything new theologically. That's why you should always weigh it against what we already have in Scripture. Uh, I've heard in this context that prophecy could be just the gift of teaching and preaching as, as opposed to maybe foretelling the future or you know, how God will play out during this time. Could that be a correct interpretation of what Paul is speaking of when he's speaking of prophecy here? Or is it more in the context of how we've been discussing it as far as foretelling the future plans of the Lord? Larry, can I speak to that? Going back to, I heard this many times in my very conservative seminary, exactly what was just said to me is the working definition of prophecy that I've heard all my life, and it fits. Prophecy, and this is the way it was said, is both foretelling, F-O-R-T-H, telling forth the gospel and the truth, and foretelling. Uh, I agree with Larry that the canon, the standard of the Bible is closed, but I don't have any argument with passages like Matthew 24, known as the Little Apocalypse, and the book of Revelation, uh, much of the book of Revelation, is still uh, foretelling. It hasn't come true yet. I say often, uh, reading from chapter 21 or 22 of Revelation, that hasn't happened. You can go read it later. That has not happened yet, a new heaven and a new earth. We're well aware of that today. So there are scriptures, many of them, that are still to be prophetically fulfilled. That's the foretelling. The scripture is closed, but what it's telling about is still being unfolded. Does that make any sense at all? Yes, it does. I view that the same way, although there are places where it's talking about prophecy and prophets that I think is more talking about the writing of Scripture and revealing God's truth to us, okay, that is now written in the Bible. And yet I agree with you also that now the gift of prophecy could be 
teaching others and helping them understand what is written in Scripture so they can see what do we know, what has God revealed to us about the end times, what has God revealed to us about how we're to live our life here on earth. And so what you've just said is consistent with my understanding as well. Okay, so now we're going to get into the role of women in church. And we touched on this back when we were in chapter 11. So given the time today, I'm not going to go probably as deep as we did when we studied chapter 11. So if you want, you can go back and listen to that. So let me read it. I'll give you a couple of other places that we can look briefly, and then we can talk about it further. So now Paul's going to talk about the role of women in the church when we gather together in the church. Verse 34, let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. So what Paul is saying is that the proper role for a woman in church is not to be leading the service, not to be the pastor, not to be the preacher, but to sit and learn. He's not saying that women can't speak at all in church. For instance, there's other places where he says they can pray. I don't think he's saying they can't sing a hymn in worship, but what he's addressing is leading the church in preaching because that's what he's talking about. If they desire to learn, let them learn at home. Now, verse 35 is a total indictment to all of us as men, I think. Maybe I shouldn't be so broad as say that. I'm not casting judgment on anybody here, <laughs> but I don't think men do this enough. And Paul is assuming that the husbands are going to be teaching our wives at home, teaching them the gospel in the scripture, that we're going to be doing that at home. And what he's referring to is, remember, this is the Greco-Roman culture, and now women are beginning to rebel. They want to have power. Think back to Genesis 3, when the curse came. God says one of the curses on the women is that after the fall of Adam and Eve, he says that you're going to desire your husband. And what that is really saying is you're going to desire to control your husband. So part of of the fall, part of the curse is a woman's desire to rule over her husband. That's why we see so much of this talk about being submissive, because part of the curse is for the woman to dominate and rule over the husband. And that's part of the curse. And what God put in place was these roles in the church. That doesn't mean women are inferior to men. There's plenty of verses that say we are to love one another. In fact, we are told to serve one another. So that's not what this is talking about. These are roles. This isn't saying women are inferior. We are equal in the sight of God, but we are given certain roles in the church. And as men, we're to be leading our wives at home in scripture. And what Paul's talking about is he didn't want the women speaking up in a way at church to embarrass their husbands because that was just going to cause all kinds of chaos in the church. And that wasn't going to edify anybody. He's wanting order in the church. And so he's saying it would be improper if your husband's up there teaching, don't be shouting out things to your husband while he's leading the church. Verse 36, was it from you that the word of God first went forth or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandments. So Paul's saying, look, I'm speaking the word of God. That's what I'm telling you. Verse 38, 
But if anyone does not recognize this, meaning Paul's authority in God's word here, he is not recognized, meaning you'll be rejected by God if you don't recognize this. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. So let me just show you very quickly. I'll try to do it quick. I know this can be a very controversial area, women's role in the church. In fact, there are so many women pastors in doing my preparation for this. I saw there's somewhere between 20 to 30 percent of the pastors now in the U.S. are female. And so what is all that all about? So let me go over and show you a couple of more verses. Go over to the right to 1 Timothy. I'm going to take you there first. Keep turning over to the right and you'll get there eventually. It's not too far. It's right after Thessalonians. Where I want to start, go over to 1 Timothy 3.15 because then I'm going to set the context for what I'm going to read to you. This is Paul talking again. And he says, but in case I'm delayed... I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So he's writing to Timothy, explaining how to conduct the church service when people gather together in the church in assembly. Okay, so that's the context that he's writing. So now flip back over to the left and he's going to give instruction on worship. Let me start at chapter two, verse seven. Of 1 Timothy. And for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So Paul's saying, remember what happened when the woman took on this power and began rebelling and wanting to be like God. She failed to obey God and ate the fruit. But also what happened? The man failed because he didn't stay in authority. And he didn't tell Eve, whoa, 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 stop. Don't do that. Don't go forward. God told us not to eat that fruit. He just went right on along with it. So Adam failed as well. And that caused this curse that God said the woman is going to want to desire or rule over the man. That's this tension that we see. I would guess any of us who are married see it from time to time. Of course, it's my wife's listening, not my wife. Let's go on to chapter three. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. And then he talks about the qualifications of an elder in the church. And we went over that before, so I'll let you read that later. And then he talks about deacons. First of all, elders, he's talking about men. And so that's why so many churches, it doesn't say women should be elders. That's why most churches, Christian churches, don't have women elders. Deacons is a little more difficult to deal with. He starts out talking about 
deacons being men. However, verse 11 puts this right in the middle. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. But then he goes on, let deacons be husbands of only one wife. So verse 11 is interpreted differently by people. Some people think that reference to women is deacons' wives. And others say no, because there are other references that I talked about when we were in chapter 11 of women being deaconesses. And that's maybe what he's talking about. I'll leave that to you. Just people view that differently. I did want to point that out to you. And then if you would real quick, just go over to the right to the next book past Second Timothy, go to Titus. I want to show you something else. And he starts out in Titus 1 verse 5. He says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And he talks about the qualifications of an elder. Again, it's a husband of one wife, so it's a man. It is very clear that the elder should be male. And then you continue on. If you go over to chapter 2, of Titus, he says, I'll begin in verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. Teaching what is good, that's what I wanted you to see. So there is a role for women to teach. He goes on that they may encourage young women to love their husbands, to love their children. So clearly there is a role of teaching. There are people who believe that women can be pastors in a church. Use some of these verses to say, see, yes, clearly women should be pastors. There's others who believe that no, they should be allowed to teach in a more informal manner, certainly teach their children the scriptures. That is clearly their role. And so I just want to point those things out to you too, as you try to come to your own conclusions here. What I do want to say is I think let's keep focused on the big things, but I did want you to see why there are some churches that don't allow women to be pastors. And this is why I think it is pretty clear. It's hard to take verse 34 of 1 Corinthians 14 let women keep silent in the churches, and it's stated elsewhere as we discussed. What does that mean? But I'll leave that with you. So to wrap up, I would say that Paul's saying that the principles of love and edifying others have to guide our use of spiritual gifts, particularly in public worship when we're gathering together. It's important to edify believers and also to reach out to the unconverted. And our spiritual gifts are there to help build up the church. They're not there to bring some type of individual fulfillment to ourselves or to glorify ourselves. And finally, our church worship should be orderly. There shouldn't be chaos. Worship should be done in a way that is orderly and is edifying to those who are there, believers and non-believers. So with that, I'll open it up. I'd love to hear your thoughts. So the note that I have on 34 in my Bible says the women are to keep silent in the church. It says whatever this restriction means, it must include tongues and prophecy. I mean, I know that we are, uh, as human race, just constantly kind of bending the rules on everything. And maybe I could speak for myself most of my life, never had read the Bible and didn't have anything to, to ground myself with. And so I sort of just kind of went about life making up my own rules. But I imagine there are people, plenty of Christians who have read the Bible and, and just sort of said, well, you know, this is all good except for this part here. I don't agree with this, so I'm not going to abide by it. I'm just wondering if this is just another example of that. I guess I'm wondering, is, is it sinful for a woman to be accepted in and seek after to be a minister and then to be one? Or, and if it is, is it 
just sort of like, is it on par with any other sin that we do? Because we decide we don't necessarily agree with that particular restriction that God's putting on us. Well, I think whenever you get to a place where you start ignoring or tearing out parts of Scripture, I think you're getting on a slippery slope. I know a female minister, and it's interesting in the discussion that I was having with her one time, asking her about some of these verses, how does she interpret them? I wasn't trying to talk to her in a way that was accusatory or judgmental. I just wanted to understand her perspective on it. And it was very interesting as the discussion went on, what she explained is, you know, this Bible is such that we are to view the Bible through the lens of the culture. And this is, this Bible is living. And so as culture changes, we have to read scripture in a way and interpret it through the way our culture is today. And I'm going, wow, that sounds really slippery. And so she was saying, so, you know, I read the Bible that way. And therefore, you know, some of these things don't mean today what they meant then. Hmm, that's an interesting interpretation. And then that went on to then later become, and there are mistakes in the Bible. And, you know, God is a woman. And I mean, so you can begin to, you can tear out things that you don't, like. I just think that's not the intention of what God said. This is God's word. He gave it to us. It's here for our teaching. And I'm not going to judge anybody. If they choose to do something, I'm not the one to judge. That's between them and God. All I can do is point out the word of God and say, you know, here it is. I can try to explain it. Some words are pretty easy to understand. Others are more difficult to understand. But I'm not going to judge anybody. And I've heard females preach, and I've learned a lot of things from female preachers. Like Chris, I've gone to many different churches, particularly as I was going through seminary. All I'm telling you is this is what it says in the Bible, and I think we do well when we do what it says. That was very well said. I feel like there are some certain things in here that are black and white, and we agree that this is this thing is sinning and this thing is not sinning. And this is, to me, seems to be pretty black and white, and it's repeated in different books, as you just showed us. It clearly is pointing out the positions and, and roles everybody's supposed to be taking. Yeah, and you know, you look at, and I read it to you, First Timothy 2.11, let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. And th by the way, the context of that is in the church assembly. And so, yeah, there's verses that are, when you read them, they look like they're pretty clear. And then when you go back and look at Genesis 3, the curse from the fall is that women are going to want to control their husband and seek this power kind of all makes sense why we read so much about submission. Larry, I apologize. Where was that again? It's in Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So there's going to be this tension. And if you go back and look at desire, I, we're running out of time today, but I can show you where that same Hebrew word is used other places, and in, in the way it's used can be interpreted to mean control or have authority over. Okay, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.